And then we will also read again from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through the end of that chapter. We begin in Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And let's also turn to Ephesians 3, from which our text is taken. And let's read verses 14 through the end of the chapter. Ephesians 3, beginning at verse 14. And here scripture records for us the Apostle Paul's prayer for the church. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So far, our scripture reading. For the sermon this afternoon is taken from the passage that we read together from Ephesians 3. The verses 16 and 17b, 17a. 16 and 17a. Part of Paul's prayer for the church. And that prayer is that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And after the sermon, we will respond by singing from Psalm 
90, the eighth stanza. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, this afternoon we're going to delve into Paul's prayer for the church, his prayer for believers in Ephesus, and of course it's a prayer for the church today as well. And it's a striking prayer. It's a prayer for power. You see that in verse 16, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power. Again, in verse 18, that you may have strength to comprehend. And finally, verse 19, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. That also has to do with power. Paul prays that the believers in Ephesus may be filled with divine power. And why is that his focus? Well, the apostle knows full well that Believers are not superheroes, but weak men and women, weak boys and girls who can only become what God asks of them and only do what God asks of them through divine power. How is the church to show the manifold wisdom of God and be the showcase of God's glory unless God fills the church and his people with divine power? We certainly don't have that power in ourselves and so this, this is true for us as well, just as, as it was for the Ephesians. And that's why the church today also needs this prayer. Pray to be strengthened with divine power. That's the theme. Pray to be strengthened with divine power. First of all, from the riches of God's glory. Secondly, through the Spirit. And thirdly, that Christ may dwell in your heart. Note, congregation, at the opening of Paul's prayer gives us the basis for why we pray or how we pray. The opening line of Paul's prayer reminds us that we only come to the Father through grace. We have to bow our knees in humility. We always need to keep in mind that we pray with on bended knee before the Father of grace. And that's reaffirmed in verse 16. Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is that the Father may grant them to be strengthened. To grant something is to give something freely. We need to recognize always that we never come before the Father, we never ask Him for anything apart from grace. We never earn any of God's gifts or blessings. We only receive them according to His grace, according to His undeserved favor. And when we consider what we are being taught to pray for in this prayer, we surely have to admit that we are asking only what we can receive by grace. Paul prays here that the Father would give us riches, riches according to the riches of his glory. And what are those riches that would strengthen us? Well, we can answer that question because... Those riches have already been mentioned earlier in this letter, in 3 verse 8. For example, Paul compares his own spiritual poverty with the unsearchable riches of Christ. I am the least of all saints, he writes, but I have been given the privilege of declaring to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
who would have thought that the one-time persecutor of the church and hater of Christ and hater of Gentiles or of hater of Christians would become a preacher of the gospel? Only the riches of God's glory make this possible. And if we go back to chapter 2, this becomes more clear. There we are told that God, who is rich in mercy, verse 4, has made us alive in Christ, verse 5, even though, verse 1, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And he has already seated us in the heavenly places with Christ, 2, verse 6. And he enables us to show the immeasurable riches of his grace, verse 7. You see, the riches of God's glory are, are revealed in the extravagance of his grace and mercy, which saves us from eternal death and from hell. And gives us security. And the source of all these riches is Jesus Christ. Paul made that clear already in chapter 1. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Which he lavished upon us. 1 verse 7 and 8. So the riches of God are his kindness and his mercy. Which he lavishes on us for the sake of Christ's blood shed on the cross for our sins. And the riches of his glory, they cover all of our debts, no matter how high we can pile them and have piled them. And the riches of his glory are so vast that they they provide us with access to his kingdom. We have all the rights and privileges of being citizens of the kingdom of heaven, And of the household of God, we may even call God Father. God God is not a stingy billionaire who who just doles out a measly million bucks here and there. Then he would be giving out of his riches. But he gives lavishly and extravagantly according to his riches. The riches of his glory, which are immeasurable and bottomless. So wide and so long and so high and so deep that you can't wrap your arms around them. Or your mind. The point is that God is not lacking in resources to give you everything that you need. Everything you need. And your needs are not in the first place what you need for daily living. For yourself and for your daily living. But what you need in order to fulfill God's purpose for you. We need to understand this well, brothers and sisters, because it all too often happens that we use human standards to try to understand what God's grace and mercy toward us is and what his blessings are. We sometimes have the impression that that God's grace and love toward us is variable. It comes to us in greater or smaller quantities, and, and we base that on whether or not we're having a good day. We have, if we have a bad day or, or a really bad week, we, we sort of hope that God will be more kindly disposed toward us the next day or the next week. That he will send us more or, or better blessings tomorrow. Isn't, isn't that how we often think? And isn't it true that our concept of what constitutes God's grace for us is based on our own opinion on, of what is good for us? But in the meantime, we don't know what's good for us, do we? And that's why as Christians, the Bible tells us that we should 
trust God to know what is good for us. After all, he is our almighty and heavenly father, our loving father. He is both able and willing to give us all good and avert all evil or turn it to our benefit. We all confess that, don't we? And Paul had to learn this lesson as well. Perhaps you recall that at one time he had what he called a thorn in the flesh. He writes about that in 2 Corinthians 12. We don't know exactly what that was, but we do know that it bothered him so much that he asked the Lord to, re, to, to take it away from him. Three times even he asked God to take away this, this thorn in the flesh, this bothersome thing. He thought it would be better for himself and better for the church and better for the gospel if this, this thing was removed. But God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. And that's something that we all need to learn. And we need to be reminded of that again and again. Grace is all we need And all other things are added mercies. Remember as well, congregation, we don't receive grace to live the good life. We don't receive the riches of God's glory so that we can have a rich and fulfilling life according to human standards. Grace is all that we need in order to fulfill God's purpose for us and for the church. And anything extra is exactly that. Now, before Paul launched into this prayer for the church, he has has painted for us an an extravagant panorama, so to speak, of, of what God's purpose for the church looks like. The church is to be the model for what God is doing and what he plans to bring about in eternity. He has raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his at his right hand above all power and dominion. He has put all things under Christ's feet. And in this world, on this side of eternity already, God is working out that plan by bringing together Jew and Gentiles, we heard this morning, rich and poor, black and white into one family, a family in which the love of God is preeminent, a family in which all the brothers and sisters love to serve God and worship him together, a family that's characterized by worship and prayer and not by anger and gossip, A family where the strugglers and the stragglers are also encouraged to fulfill their purpose. Where those who fall are gently lifted up and restored. A family that's also willing to stand up for the truth because they serve the God of truth. A family that knows it has a message for the world. That we don't have to live and die in hopelessness. But that in Christ Jesus we have strength for today and hope for tomorrow. Because all things belong to him. Now how are we to live this model if God does not lavish the riches of his glory on us? And for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, says Paul. Because I am weak and I am poor. I cannot do what God asks of me unless he lavishes the riches of his glory and grace upon me. Is this how you pray? As well, brothers and sisters, do you pray this for yourself? Do you pray this for others? And do you pray this for the church of God? That God would strengthen us according to the riches of his glory. 
But there's more to this prayer. Paul continues with the petition that God would provide power through the Spirit in your inner being. Earlier in chapter 1, Paul had already spoken of the resurrection power of Christ that also lives in us. 1 verse 18 and 20. The power of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power that also makes us alive in Christ. And as Christians, we not only need the Holy Spirit to be regenerated, to be reborn, but we also need the Holy Spirit to remain in the Christian life, to remain alive in Christ. We need the power of the Holy Spirit because we all face problems that we can't solve. And we all face temptations that we can't overcome. And we all have a calling as believers that we can't begin to to exercise unless we have the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, everyone born into the family of God and everyone who enters the family of God is a weak person, totally dependent on their need for the Holy Spirit. We never, we never outgrow our need for the Spirit of God. Has it ever occurred to you that God only uses weak people to accomplish his purposes? The only exception, of course, was our Lord Jesus Christ. But all of God's saints are weak people. Even the giants of faith were weak people. Even those who accomplished much for the church and the kingdom of heaven, they're all weak people. The Bible and church history is full of examples of of weak people who were yet used by God to accomplish His purposes. And they could only do so by the power of His Spirit. That's how God works. What seems to be weak and foolish in the eyes of people is the wisdom of God, as we heard also this morning. And the Lord also made that clear to Paul. If we listen to the rest of God's answer to Paul, when he asked God to remove that thorn from his flesh, the Lord said to him, My grace is sufficient for you. But then he added, For my power is made perfect in weakness. And that's why Paul could write, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And this is what we need to understand as well, beloved. Whatever our circumstances may be, we are always content because we belong to Jesus Christ. And so we all need this prayer Because the only way that we can be content in God's grace is when we are strengthened by the Holy Spirit because it goes against our natural inclination. And notice that Paul adds that that we be strengthened in our inner being. That is where true spiritual life must blossom, in our inner being, in our heart. Because the battle against sin and temptation is won there, in our heart. All our outward actions are dictated by what lives here in our hearts. The Lord Jesus said himself that all our outward sins come from the impurity of our heart. And it's very well possible for you to change your behavior, your outward behavior, employing various techniques or methods that you learn from counseling or from reading good books. And that's all well and good. But if God doesn't change your heart, 
then you're just learning to become a better hypocrite. You see, genuine Christianity is not a moral improvement program because God is in the business of changing hearts and attitudes and and desires and motives. And for that kind of interchange, we need nothing less than the power of the Spirit of God. Only He can make your heart the kind of place where Jesus is pleased to dwell. And that's the next part of Paul's prayer. He prays that we would be strengthened with divine power, that Christ may dwell in your heart. He prays that Christ may dwell in our heart through faith. Now, in a sense, that's really a parallel request to the previous one, to be strengthened with the power of the Spirit, because to have Christ dwell in your heart is also to have the Spirit dwell in your heart. And to have the Spirit of God regenerate and renew you is to have Christ dwelling in you. You have to keep in mind that Paul is speaking to Christians here. He's not speaking to those who still have to receive the Lord Jesus, still need to be reborn. He's speaking to those who are already are Christians, who have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in them. So what he's speaking about is the ongoing character of the Christian life. And he understands that in order to live the Christian life, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to be united to Christ. And the only way to be united to Christ is through his Spirit. This is a staggering truth, isn't it, if you really think about it. It is Christ who dwells in you. Are you a believer in Christ? Then Christ has taken up residence in you. By faith, you are united to him and he resides in you. You think about that truth for a moment. You really think about it. Because if you think who Jesus Christ is and about who he is and the power that he has and his strength and majesty and his glory, you get kind of weak in the knees. And you bow before the Father. Because this knowledge, is it, isn't it almost too great? I am weak and frail and the Lord of the universe wants to make his home in me. He wants to make me a holy temple. And I become his dwelling place. Isn't that almost, almost too much to take in and to understand? We are weak and frail and we are, we are messed up and we should carry the king of glory in us. We are broken vessels, and the Lord wants to make us temples of Jesus Christ. How can we do this? How can this be? Well, it is only by the power of the Spirit of God who strengthens me according to the riches of His glory. And brothers and sisters, it is no small thing to carry the King of glory in your heart. The Lord Jesus comes to make his home in your heart as you receive him by faith. And you see, the Christian life is is not about adding a little bit of Jesus here and there. It's not about making a few cosmetic changes to your outward behavior. Because unbelievers can do that too. But the Christian life is about a radical and mind-blowing life-altering transformation. My Father in heaven has determined that I, unholy sinner, 
should become a palace of the king, a temple of the spirit. That the king of glory should make his royal home in me. And that means then that I have a new identity in Jesus Christ. It means I am no longer dead in my transgressions and sins, but I am I'm alive in Christ. Now my identity is in him, and I am a new person. See, the more you know about what God has done for you, and the more you realize how great a salvation you have received, what God has rescued you from, and the more you also realize how much you really need his grace and Holy Spirit. We need, to, we need grace to trust in Christ. We need grace to be a place where Christ can make his residence. That's what we need to know and understand, but even more, we need to believe it. We need to make this truth our own. You see, if you don't really understand this, and if you don't understand how lost you are apart from Christ, and if you don't understand how sinful sin is, then you don't get the gospel. And if you minimize who Jesus is, and if you think that he only needs to sprinkle a little bit of grace here and there in your life so that you can make some cosmetic changes, then then also you've misunderstood the gospel. And then you won't be very impressed either with being a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. We need to be impressed with this. Are you impressed? Does that impress you? Does that truth stagger you? Does it make your knees wobbly? Does it bring you to your knees before the Father of grace? And does it affect your life? Does this truth also affect your attitude and your lifestyle? Because note that the Apostle says Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. And faith is never passive. True faith cannot be passive. True faith does much more than bring you to your knees in humble prayer. It also brings you to your knees in humble submission to the one who dwells in you. And the word that Paul uses here refers to a permanent indwelling. Christ has taken up permanent residency in you, the believer. And that, must, that means that we must also welcome him into, into every part of our life. There can be no area of your life that you are uncomfortable inviting the Lord Jesus into. Think of it this way. When Jesus dwells in your heart, he's knocking on the door of your home. Will you let him in? Would you dare say to him, Lord Jesus, my heart is yours And I want my life to be yours too and my home. So please come in because everything I have belongs to you. And I want you to be comfortable here. And so you take him into your kitchen and your living room. And maybe maybe the Lord has a little bit of cleaning up to do there. Some magazines or books that aren't all that appropriate. And then maybe he sees your computer and you kind of wish that you had wiped off the search history before he saw it. But you let him clean up that part of your life too. And then you take the Lord Jesus down the hallway to you, to the family room and you introduce him to your friends. 
And maybe the Lord would ask you, why, why are you dating someone whose heart is not fully committed to me? Why are you risking your heart this way? And then you realize that you have betrayed the Lord Jesus that way, and you haven't been completely honest with your friend either, so you have some explaining to do. And then the Lord asked you what kind of activities you're doing and what kind of games you play, and you were really hoping that he wouldn't mention that, but you're not all that comfortable with him joining you in your activities. But then you realize that in order to have true joy in Jesus Christ, you also need to let him take charge of this part of your life. You need to allow him to clean up your family room too. And so you take the Lord Jesus through all the rooms in your home. And then you're walking down the hallway and you're heading back to the, to the kitchen and the Lord Jesus stops and says, What's that smell? And then you start feeling really guilty and reluctantly you show him that closet, that hidden and secret closet that no one else knows about and only you have the key and it's locked. And here is where you start thinking of the Lord Jesus as an intruder and not as a visitor because that closet is off limits. Why, why should Jesus bother with that closet? You've already given him everything else, your kitchen and your living room and your family room and your bedroom and everything. You've let him clean it all up. Does he really need to see that dirty closet too? But then the Lord might say to you, I can't stay here tonight because it stinks too much. I might have to sleep out on the street. But brothers and sisters, when it comes to that point, doesn't your heart sink down to your toes? And then you say, Lord Jesus, I will give you the key to that closet too. Please take it. Please clean it up too. But don't leave me. Stay in my home. See, brothers and sisters, when we pray that Christ would dwell in our heart through faith, we are asking him to be Lord and Master of our life. Every part of it. All of it. And then we have to pray that he, that he would, as it were, move from one room to the next until it's all cleaned up. And we may not refuse him access to certain rooms. And we may not refuse him access to that secret closet either. See, if the Lord dwells in your heart, then he is master of all that you have and all that you are. Do you see now why this prayer in Ephesians 3 is so important to the Christian life? So vital. You and I would never give the Lord Jesus access to a single part of our life if it was not for the power of the Holy Spirit, if God did not lavish the riches of his glory on us, if he did not grant us his grace and his mercy so that Christ could dwell in our heart through faith. And we need the Holy Spirit to be able to sustain the reality of having Jesus live in our heart. We're not capable of having Jesus being present in our life unless we receive power from the Holy Spirit. And then we also need Christ. Brothers and sisters, we need him in our lives in order to fulfill the purpose that God has for us and together for the church. Christ needs to be the Lord and master of our life. 
if we are to be who we are supposed to be, and if the church is to fulfill the task that God has given her. If the church is to display the manifold wisdom of God, we need this prayer. And our Heavenly Father is able to give all that we need because He has limitless riches. And so if you sincerely pray this prayer, you cannot refuse the Lord Jesus access to any part of your life. God wants all of your life for His purpose, for His glory. And so, if there's anyone listening this afternoon who does not want to be fully committed to the Lord Jesus, then be warned, because He will not be trifled with, and He will not allow Himself to be mocked. The Lord Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters Don't think that you can have one foot in the world and another one in the kingdom of heaven. One foot in the world and keep your pet sins in your closet. It doesn't work that way, congregation. If you want to serve Christ, it's all or nothing. Amen.